So last week, Pastor Michael preached a amazing message uh, and he, a, he really kind of kicked off my um, series for the month of February. Uh, he talked about the perfect church. And, and the reality is, is that there really is no such thing because the, the, the big C church, his bride, is the perfect church, as messy as we are. And that, that hints the name of my series for the month of February, Messy Church. Because we're gonna talk about what God has called us as a church, uh, what it looks like to be a part of God's plan as a church. And Michael said something that I think is so key to the idea of big C and then little C congregational church is that the congregational church, we on Sunday mornings, are only as strong and as faith-filled as we independently, one another, are faith-filled and strong. So you can't come to church and go, man, I hope, I hope the pastor preaches a good faith-filled message and, 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 and encourages me and uh, fills me up so I can go out and expect that to be enough for you. And, and we can't expect the church to operate smoothly if there are not believers that are faith-filled, loving Jesus outside Monday through Saturday. You can't get to Sunday and expect church to operate well if people are not pouring into their walk on a daily basis basis. So um, I, I'm going to tell you, I am excited about this message. There is a, listen, today is going to be more teaching than preaching, or at least that's the way I planned it in my head. Can't promise that's how it's going to go in life, okay? Um, but I want you to know that this is not fully my message. I'm upfront and honest with, uh, listen, pastors steal each other's stuff all the time. Okay, if you don't think that, you don't know enough pastors. Okay, if I hear a good message, I'm gonna tweak it, turn it, and make it, uh, make it mine, and most of the time, you don't even know it. But I'm gonna give honor where honor is due in this one because this, you're gonna hear some things and you go, wow, you're really deep. I'm not that deep, okay? <laughs> I can get deep, I'm just not this deep. So I, got, I fell in love with a pastor, um, that sounds really odd, by the way, um, but I fell in love with a pastor named uh, John Mark Comer. He's out of Oregon. Um, he actually is no longer a pastor over a church. He left uh, the church that he uh, founded and now is uh, a president of a, uh, a 501c3, a nonprofit uh, called Practicing the Way. It's, it's kind of what he did as a pastor and then he put it into play of what does it look like to be the Christian? What does it look like to really know who you are? Um, and so I was listening to him this week and he preached this message on the gospel. And my heart was captivated. So it's an eight-week series, not just on the gospel, but on, on this series that he's preaching. This was week one. And uh, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to remind you at the end, I encourage you to go to Spotify or YouTube and look up Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, or just look up John Mark Comer, uh, Four American Gospels. So he preaches, the, the, the kind of the part two to this message is this, this four American Gospels, and he'll preach it way better than I ever could. And what he does is, in not a negative, mean um, way, he breaks down the four major Gospels that you, we hear in American churches, and he talks about the pros, but he also talks about the cons, and he talks in light of what the actual gospel is. And so that's what we're going to look at today. What do we call the gospel? What is the messy church? What, what should our foundation, right? We're talking about deconstruction. 
I'm gonna, we're gonna deconstruct what the gospel means. And for some of you, it may be right in line with you. And for some, you may hear some things today that you go, I've never heard the gospel presented in that way before. So what does it look like for a church to truly follow after the heart and the way of Jesus? Can we, can we get it right? Does, it, does doing it like it has always been done satisfy the calling for our church here as Freedom Church and the purpose of the gospel? You know, if we constantly do what we've always done, we're always going to get what we've always got. And for some of us, that's unsatisfying. Anybody ever like just walking through life and you're going, I just, I just feel blah. I, I know life should have some excitement to it. I know serving Jesus should have some excitement to it, but I just, I just feel eh. And so we just keep going through the motions, hoping and expecting something to change. And the reality is, is that if you're giving everything that you've always given, you're going to get what you've always got. So you got to change it up. But literally, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And so we have got to look at the gospel. We have to look at our faith and go, if I'm not getting what Jesus says I should be getting out of it, maybe I need to change some things up. Maybe I need to dive into the Bible and say, am I just following the American way of Christianity or is there something deeper that I should be pressing into? That word, the gospel, what does it mean? There's a pastor by the name of Derwin Gray. He, pre, uh, he, he runs a church on uh, the East Coast called Transformation Church. And he says this, the gospel we preach, and let me this messed me up this, uh, uh, two days ago when I heard this. The gospel we preach is the churches we get. And the churches we have is the results of the gospel we preach. You may go, well, that sounds really cute. What does it mean? What does it mean is if you've gone to churches and you're like, I don't know if I actually agree with any of that, but the pastor's saying it, so it must be true, Right? When you walk into church and you hear these messages that say, healthy, wealthy, and whole, that should be you. And you're going, well, I'm sick, tired, and dying. Am I not, am I, am I not close to Jesus? You know how many people have left the church because they thought that their sin was getting in the way of God doing something in their life and, and the wholeness and the healing? Well, I, I, I'm battling cancer, and, and they died of cancer, but we prayed for them. I've been battling. Listen, Paul says it this way. He says, take this thorn from my side. And Jesus says, no, because in your weakness, I am made strong. My, my pastor in California, he, um, he's, he's battled cancer twice now. He just got uh, through with a second bout of cancer. His first bout of cancer, he, uh, he, he told the church, he said, this isn't for me. This is for somebody else. I'm walking through it to show my faith to you. That God, whether he heals me here on earth or whether he takes me and heals me and I, I, I'm in, with him in his presence, I am whole. And the, it, it, the prosperity gospel, it tells you, man, Christians shouldn't be poor. They shouldn't be sick. And, and what happens is, is the moment that you don't have that, what do you think about your faith in Christ? You've got, and, and listen, I'll, I'll tell, I'm, I'm going to stop preaching this because this is, whole, this is John Mark Comer's whole four American Gospels, and I'm telling you, it's so good. And it's not that they are bad and that we are better. It's that there is little bitty misconceptions hidden in the truth. Every single one of those, the four American Gospels that he preaches about, believes Jesus died for the sins, 
believes that we, should, that we will live eternally if we choose him. But the problem is, is that we start to implement things that do not have biblical foundation and truth in it, and pastors get people to believe it. In a world that is so focused on individual relativism, big word, we have allowed uh, sayings to penetrate even the church, sayings like, speak your truth. You do you. Or who am I to judge? None of those are biblical. <laughs> None of them are biblical. You do you says, I'm okay with you going to hell. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. I love it. When, 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 when we tell people, well, who am I to judge? And I've, I've talked about judging a lot. That we get it so twisted. The Bible does not say that we should not judge. It says that we should judge accordingly. So judgment isn't a I'm better than, it's a I'm invited in. So it's not, it's not man, I'm, I'm better than Sean, and so I'm going to tell him where he's lacking. It's me and him have been invited into each other's life, and now we're holding accountability to one another, and because we're holding accountability and space for one another, when he is making mistakes, I'm able to say, hey, Sean, bro, I love you, but and vice versa. What we can't do is we can't judge the lost and the hurting because they're not ready to hear us. They're not even living for Jesus. We want to hold people that don't live for Jesus to standards that, about Jesus. How about we introduce them to Jesus first? We get relationship first. And then we say, hey, let's go on this faith journey, this gospel journey, and let me show you Jesus. And then when they invite you in, they will hear you. Not in a judgmental, better than, but uh, I'm holding you accountable because I want the best for you. It feels on an emotional level challenging and even holier than thou to preach the gospel in a society that claims one of its highest moral values is tolerance. Never mind the fact that all around us, other are preaching other gospels. The gospel of careerism, the gospel of science, the gospel of sexual identity or gender identity or political identity, or what about the gospel of social media? See, all around, we as Christians have been told, either in word or in action, to slow your roll, go to church, and don't spread it anywhere else, while everybody else in the world is spreading some form of gospel. And as Christians, we're like, I don't want to be holier than thou. I don't want to feel like I'm better than. And God is saying, no, I have called you. Not just me as a pastor who, who, who does this for a living, who loves to speak God's word, who loves to put messages together. This is such like 2% of preaching the gospel, people. Sunday mornings is such the, it's just the community coming together and saying, hey, listen, you've got a calling to lead us as your flock. But man, the gospel, it's so much deeper and so much richer than just what we hear on Sunday mornings. Both preaching and trying to legislate these gospels all throughout our nation. Listen, the evangelical movement in the church, which, by the way, many great things have come out of, including the great emphasis on, quote unquote, evangelism, <laughs> hence the name, and the missionary movement of the 18th and 19th century. So evangelical has like this really like, ick word, like feel right now. And a lot of it is because evangelism has also now been tied to politicalism. That evangelical also means the crazy right-wing people. <laughs> because in a lot of spectrum, that's what we have, that we as the church have allowed. 
We've allowed a political movement to, to hold captive people that love Jesus and move them more into the political than the spiritual. And so we, 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 we got this evangelical when you say that. I guarantee you say that in a very liberal leaning group and they will tramp. They don't see Jesus. Hear me? When we say evangelical, many Americans don't even hear Jesus anymore. They hear Trump. They hear right wing. They hear conservative. And we have plucked Jesus out of what Jesus started. And in turn, we have put our own gods. Okay, I'm, listen, I know I said I was going to teach more than I preach. Okay. Uh, <laughs> listen, listen. The, the evangelical movement, unfortunately, though, it's created that bad taste. Now, listen, it's, listen that's, this is modern, but let's go back a little bit more, right? Then there's the post-World War II distortion of the gospel, where, where pastors were giving everybody their ticket to heaven. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a uh, German theologian, which if you have never heard of him, you need to go study him. He is amazing, okay? He stood up against Hitler when all the other pastors were bowing down. Go look on Dietrich. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up and died for the cause of Christ in front of Hitler for his stance. He refers to that kind of uh, gospel as cheap grace. That knocking on the door and asking if, you're, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? How many have ever been presented with the, that kind of gospel? If you died tonight, where would you go? And what, the question isn't bad. The question is wholesome. But once again, it's how is it heard, Right? If you don't know your neighbor and you go knock on the door, hi, I'm your neighbor. If you died tonight, where would you go? <laughs> like maybe, maybe start with some cookies. Our neighbors got to know us by bringing us pizza the first night. Like not, you know, hi, do you know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? We want to kick down, uh, I call it SWAT team evangelism. I always have. It's where we think that Christianity has to come with, oh, I'm here to save you. That's not how we're, that, that is not the gospel. It's cheap. Or how many have ever had the little gospel tracks? And once again, I'm not knocking them, but it's so impersonal. Um, he talks about how he saw a $100 uh, gospel track on the uh, ground one time. I had one when I was serving. That was the tip a Christian gave me. Mm. Listen, you want to distaste the gospel? Don't tip when you go out and you leave some stupid track. Okay? We are the worst tippers. And I can say that from somebody who served and managed restaurants. Christians on Sunday suck, <laughs> says all the servers. Listen, they will tell you. They will tell you. I'll tell you this. If you represent Freedom Church and you represent the kingdom of God, if you go out to eat on Sundays, you better tip or you better keep our name out your mouth. <laughs> like, tell, tell them you go somewhere else on this Sunday because, listen, we are meant to be Generous. We're meant to, to show people, they are working hard. If you don't think servers work, don't work hard, then you need to go be a server and check it out and try. We should be generous. I got that track. I, I love Jesus. I was a pastor at that time. I said, I can't believe you. Crumpled it up. I already know Jesus. I don't need a $100 track. I need real money. That's what pays the bills. 
For real. I, she needs, she's like my hype man. <laughs> Listen, the idea of preaching the gospel or evangelism, evangelism, as many know it, it becomes a trigger because of how bad the church has done it and how we've used it against the world. We have become a society of Christians uh, that uh, have become allergic to the idea of preaching the gospel of Jesus. We prefer to follow Jesus in private, but not in public. We, we will post something on social media, but we won't tell our coworkers, or our family members, or our friends about the very life-changing source that has radically messed our world up and given us a completely different worldview. We would rather hide and post. We'd rather hide and, and, and do something privately instead of trying to let the world know. The thought process is actually pretty normal for most of us when it comes to sharing because it's, it's scary. It's, 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 there's a, there's a, a, a feeling inside of us that we're perceiving how people are going to accept us or what they're going to say to what we have to offer in the gospel. And here's the thing is, um, the bad versions of Christianity that are so well known, that is so promoted on social media, that's so promoted in the, in, in the news is what we have in our mind when we're presenting the truth to people. But look at what Jesus has to say uh, about preaching the kingdom of God in an, uh, an unhealthy and serving way. This is what Jesus says. Matthew 23, 15, he says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees. So Jesus is speaking to the, the pastors and the priests and, the, and the, the leaders of the church at this time. He says, hypocrites. I've never read, listen, I've read the Bible a lot. For, I, this, I've never paid attention to this next line. Listen to what he says to these pastors. For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the ch child of hell that you are. Whoo, that's not even the message translation. That's just like the real NLT, NIV, like, that's what it says. Like, that's not even the message, like, I'm going to bring it to you even. Like, I wonder what that message says. Jesus is telling the religious leaders and the church leaders of the day, if you convert in God's name, but then you lead them astray because you want them to be religious and you want them to follow tradition for tradition's sake, you are making them down a path of hell twice as loud and as broad and as hard as you are. And yet, all four gospels of Jesus end with the call for every one of us to preach the gospel. So it's not that Jesus is against the, the converting. It's not that Jesus is against the gospel. He ends every single one of the gospels with go and preach. If you don't believe me, Matthew 28, 19, uh, 28, 19 says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Mark, uh, in Mark 16 says this, and then he told them, go into all the world and preach what? The good news to everyone. In John uh, chapter 20, verse 21, again he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. 
And in the book of Acts, which is a, a two-part uh, uh, kind of of the gospel, uh, because Luke writes Luke and he writes the book of Acts. And so at the very beginning of Acts is, his, is, is Jesus' farewell instead of the book of Luke. And he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, through Judea, and Samaria. In all four gospels, Jesus ends his message to his uh, followers, go and make more disciples. Go and tell people about me. Go and live this out so the world would know and that more would come to know the love of God. Four different ways of saying the exact same thing. Go and tell the world about the Father in me. It is a call to find the lost, the hurting, the sinner, and point them to a savior. And as Jesus told a Roman elite once, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. Over and over again, he says, I didn't come for those that were healthy. I came for those that needed a doctor. And so it's not that Jesus is looking for perfect people. He's looking for messy people to find him and not just go to church, but to be apprentices, to be disciples, to, to know what it really means to live for him. So how does Jesus do that today? Newsflash through you and me, right? The disciples did their job, turned 12 into 120 in the book of Acts, 120, and then they just started multiplying. 5,000 one day, 3,000 the next. And now we get here and the question is, are we gonna be the generation that loses the gospel? Are we gonna be the generation? Holy, what's happening here? Okay, um, if, if all else fails, just black out the TVs and, and you'll just have to follow along with me. But it's through you and me. Through somebody's, listen, through somebody's obedience, all of us are here. Every single person that came to know Jesus in a personal relationship, it's because of somebody. Maybe it's a mom or dad that dragged you to church. Maybe it's a friend that invited you, like, like my friend. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a coworker, but all of us are here because somebody invited us into church and invited us into following Jesus. And when we, can, when we come across good news, we can't help but to share it. Listen, if we go to a good movie, what's the first thing you wanna do? You wanna tell somebody or you wanna post about it? You go eat a good restaurant at a good restaurant, what do you do? Every single last one of you, most of you, I'm going to not say everybody because I know some of you in this room that don't do it, but most of us take a picture of it. When did that start, by the way? I mean, I do know when it started, when TikTok and Instagram and Facebook started because beforehand we didn't take pictures. Like you didn't see in like the 20s somebody busting out their camera and like, you know, like running around. You should see this meal I ate. But we want to tell people. It's natural. I think it's why social media is so popular is because we want to tell people of the good things that are happening in our life. Uh, outfit of the day and, uh, you know, good food. And yeah, some of you girls are OTD or whatever it is. Uh, um, and so, you know, it's people with, you know, the, the good makeup, to, and it's mostly girls, guys. We don't, like, we're like, show us something that, like, gets ran over or gets shot or, you know, something like that. Like, we want that on social media, and, and girls want to learn how to, like, do all this stuff. And we're just like, I just want to see something blow up. Um, Two different worlds, okay? But we learn because we want to share good things. And yet we get to Jesus and it's completely different. We hide it. We hold on to it. We hold it in private. 
But we've got to start realizing that speaking the good news, Luke 4.43 says this. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I must, everybody say must, must, preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too because that is why I was sent. This is Jesus saying, listen, it wasn't like Jesus going, I must preach the gospel. It's Jesus going, I must, I, it's in me. I've got to go do this. Mortimer Arias I don't know who he is, but he says something really powerful. It says, every generation has to be evangelized. That is, confronted with the good news of the kingdom of Jesus, and every generation of Christians has the unique and non-transferable responsibility of sharing the good news with its own generation. What's that saying is, somebody like Bill Jones has to, yeah, exactly, has to preach the gospel, just like Sean has to preach the gospel, just like Caleb has to preach the gospel, because there's no generation that gets an out and living it out for Jesus. We all have this non-transferable responsibility to live and speak the gospel. To, it, the, I think one of the worst sayings that the church ever, uh, ever allowed in was when it said, uh, witness always and speak if you must. That is crap. Yes, your life should line up with Jesus. But if your words don't, and if you don't tell somebody, you're hoping that they get it. While all these other secular gospels uh, are, are being preached and taught and told and from the schools and from social media, and we're quiet about it. And yet all of these other gospels aren't enough, and they let people down, finding out that money and things and people are not enough to give uh, us purpose to live fulfilled lives. And people's hearts are open to hear a true and authentic gospel. So... What is the gospel? Here's the deal. If I went around the room with a microphone, which I'm not, don't worry, and I asked you, what is the gospel? We would get multiple different answers of what the gospel is. They probably all sound very similar, but we'd get different variations of what you think the core aspect of the gospel is. What is the gospel that Jesus preached? Because if we don't start with what the gospel is that Jesus preached, we will end up preaching a gospel that Jesus didn't preach. At the beginning of Mark, your, your, your Bible probably has, if you, if you like read like a, a, a Bible, and I, I'm not being facetious, I'm like, if you carry and read a physical Bible, a lot of times I read it on my phone, um, thank God for some parts of technology, because it always goes with me, uh, but if you, if you read your Bible uh, in the Gospel of Mark, it'll say at the very beginning, as a title, it'll say something like, like this, the Gospel of Mark, or the Gospel according to Mark. Okay, in the Greek, it's euangelion kata mark. Okay, literally translated is the gospel, euangelion, according to, and then whether it's Mark or Matthew or John or Luke, each of the gospels start, each of the books start the same way. So you ready for the million dollar answer of what is the gospel? This is why pastors get paid big bucks and this is why most of them go to seminary. I did not, but, um, but this is why they do sometimes. This is the million dollar answer you've been waiting for. What is the gospel? The gospels are the gospel. You're like, that's great. You're fired. The gospels are the gospel. What do I mean by that? Okay. It means that it is, it is the full book it's not just one scripture. It's not just one catchy saying. Mark 1 to the very end of Mark is the gospel. Matthew 1 to Matthew 20 something 
is the full gospel. Luke and, and, and John, all four books. It is from the very beginning of those words, the very ending of those words of that, of that book is the full gospel. That is what the, listen, the meaning of the gospel, when you look at it that way, is likely deeper and more powerful and different than you have ever were led to believe. Why? Because uh, so many times when we talk about or when we ask a preacher, well, why don't you just, why don't you preach the gospel more? What they're saying is, why don't you just talk about Jesus on the cross dying for our sins? Why don't you just ask people if they want to have a relationship with Jesus to raise their hands and say a prayer at the end of every service? By the way, my whole world has been wrecked on that thought process and that theology. Um, I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm saying that we lead believers to a, a convenient, false-hoped faith when we say, raise your hand and say a prayer. Because we don't disciple them and tell them what it means to follow Jesus. And so when, they, when they're faced with the worst parts of their life, they're going, but I said a prayer and I raised my hand. Now what? That's where we stop. And so when we look at this, we have to recognize what the full gospel looks like, and we have to start preaching, teaching, and leading people in the full gospel. Every time me or you talk about the story of Jesus, we are preaching the gospel. Anytime I pronounce anything about Jesus from his birth to his death, death to the resurrection, to his teaching and the way he lived his life, I am preaching the gospel. And when we, simply, uh, when we simplify the gospel to John 3, 16, we are relegating so much of what the disciple is to be a disciple. Mark summarizes the gospel this way. Mark 1, 14 through 15 says this, later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, north Israel, where he preached God's good news or the good news of the kingdom of God or the gospel. And he says this, this is what Jesus says the gospel is. The time promised by God has come at last. He announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And you may say, well, that sounds very like John three sixteen. But once again, we're looking at the full spectrum of Jesus' life now from the beginning to the end of the book. And Jesus says, this is what it looks like to tell people about the gospel. That God has come and the kingdom of God is near to repent of your sins and believe the good news. That gospel word, that good news word, the Greek, that euangelion, where we get evangelized, evangelical, it was not a religious word, but a political proclamation in the Roman Empire. It was a way of proclaiming a new leader, the good news of the leader, the good news of the king. You see what Jesus is doing? He's going, I'm going to use your word and your culture, and I'm going to tell you that there's a better king than one that has been proclaimed. He says, I'm proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here, and it trumps anything that your political environment even knows. It was a royal proclamation of a king coming and his kingdom drawing near. And Jesus is proclaiming himself as king. The kingdom of God, as many theologians have studied, is an active word. I love this when I started to learn this. We go the kingdom of God and we kind of like go like here, like, ta-da, the kingdom of God. It's a place. But the word in Greek that, that they use for the kingdom of God, it's a verb. It's an action. It's, a, it's an active word in our life that, that says uh, that we are closer to, it's more like saying the reign of God. 
Some say it like it's the range of God's effective will. It is the sphere where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And when Jesus says he has come at last, that that Greek word means to either arrive or be available to. So Jesus is proclaiming that access to the very presence of God and adoption into this active kingdom has arrived and is available to everyone. Isn't that the best news we've ever heard? That no longer is it Jew and Gentile, but it's all of us adopted in when we choose to not say a prayer, not just accept. By the way, Jesus doesn't need your acceptance. Like Jesus isn't sitting up in heaven going, I really hope Jerry accepts me. I really hope that Scott accepts me. My heart will be so sad. I think his heart breaks anytime people don't choose him. But he's not like sitting around going, I hope they, like acceptance has nothing to do with it. Because never did Jesus say, come and accept me. He said, come and what? Follow me. Leave everything you've got and let's go on this journey. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has come near through Jesus and through his life, death, and resurrection and enthronement, the power of Satan's sin and death no longer has the last word. Jesus' primary message in the gospel is the kingdom of God. That word kingdom is mentioned 122 times in the gospel, 90 times spoken by Jesus himself. Kind of important, right? And yet we as the modern church don't preach kingdom. Partially because we don't understand it. We don't have monarchies. Like we don't have kingdoms. Like the, the, the biggest deal that we have is, is you know, if, uh, you know, the Great Britain, you know, London has a big deal about with their kings, all of a sudden America's involved and, and wants to know about it. But we don't care. It's more like a soap opera than it is anything else. We just want to know what's going on like everybody else. Oh, somebody's getting married. I don't even know who they are. They're like the queen of something. You know, and we get enthralled in it, but we don't know what it's like because every four to eight years, we're switching leaders. We're more about teams than we are kingdom, and we'll switch teams if the right team is for me. Kingdom says, I sit underneath a king and I am under authority. And when I say Lord, it's not I get to say no, it's I get to say yes because he knows better. And it's not that God is up there with playing puppet master and, oh, watch this. He's, he literally cares for us. So he's a good king and he's a good father. This word kingdom means to rule or reign over. And we see this going all the way back to Genesis. We were made in the image of our king. And what? Adam was given reign over all the things the king made right? He said, you have authority over all the things that I've made. Go and name it, go and do this, go and do that, but you have reign. But what the problem was is there was a coup and humanity tried to rule over the king. Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden. And ever since then, we've had this internal battle of our own Adam and Eve, of wanting our, our own will and wanting our own things instead of what the king knows best. Isaiah, who is the primary Old Testament author, uh, he was one of the first ones to use this word euangelion in the Old Testament. He used it a lot, or the gospel, which is how most conservative Jews would have kind of interacted with Jesus' gospel, that word, euangelion. He writes in Isaiah about how God's presence has departed from the temple in Jerusalem. The people at the time were basically giving up hope of God ever coming to save them. Could you imagine, like, there's no hope. 
They were far away in Babylon. He writes his gospel, and his gospel is that a Messiah, a royal announcement about a king and a kingdom, is that the Messiah or the anointed king is still coming to end Israel's exile to bring God's presence back to Jerusalem in person to reestablish God's reign over Jerusalem. And beyond, open up God's kingdom to all of the nations so that all ethnic groups, not just Jews, can live together. Not in Jerusalem, not just in Jerusalem, but across the globe in God's kingdom of peace and justice and love. Isaiah, listen, when we say Old Testament is a bunch of rules and regulations, we're not reading it with the lens of the gospel. Over and over and over again, the kingdom of God is preached in the Old Testament about how God cares for his people and wants to draw them back. He never, he never completely offs them. There's always this, this word in the Old Testament, a remnant, which means a leftover. To rise up and to live for God. So Isaiah is preaching the same thing. Jews in the first century were literally waiting for this to come to pass, for God's anointed king to arrive and usher in this long-awaited kingdom. And can you imagine when Jesus steps on the scene and he tells people what he says in Mark when he says, uh, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has arrived. But notice, he didn't say will arrive, he says has arrived. How could that possibly be true? Jesus, we, we're still under the boot of Rome. We're still under the oppression of a government. Does that sound familiar? God, how could your presence and how can your spirit and how can your will be done when, when the government is telling us what to do and how to live and they're, they're literally putting their boot to our neck is what the Jews were saying. And Jesus was saying the kingdom of God is at hand because I'm not political. I'm over that. I'm not one-sided because I care for all people. And it's not an acceptance of lifestyle. It's not an acceptance of sin. It is literally saying when we preach the gospel, when we preach the good news, that we are literally drawing people to a kingdom that thinks counter-cultural. So I want to end with this. I've got a few minutes left, and I'm going to get through this. Don't laugh at me. So three things about the kingdom, and then we're going to close. Anybody thinking three more points? Good Lord, don't worry. The kingdom is here, but also coming. This is the, 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 the craziness of faith, right? Something's here and yet still to come. Because what, what, what is Jesus' prayer? On earth as it is in heaven. So he's saying that the presence of God, the presence of heaven, the presence of his purpose can literally fall down on his people while they live, and yet there is a greater kingdom to come that we can only hope for. Yeah, hallelujah. And as scary as eternity and eternal life can be when, we, when our little brains start to think about it, it's not, I just can't wait to get to heaven. I can't stand when people go, well, I'm just here waiting. And you obviously didn't get, understand that the kingdom of God is active, and so you're supposed to actually be living it out, which is why you're not purposed which is why you're not fulfilled, which is why you think that Christianity is, is kind of lame and boring. It's because you're sitting here and you're sitting in a kingdom instead of living the kingdom. And so the, the reality is, is that the kingdom is now, but it's also to come. Sometimes Jesus would talk about the kingdom as if it was here now, and he would talk about it as if it's still yet to come, and he was saying it is both. The second thing about the kingdom is this, is the kingdom of Jesus is utterly unlike the kingdom of this world. Everybody say amen. amen. 
<laughs> now, some of us need to say amen in our spirit because we have bought the lie that we need to care more about politics than Jesus. Curl your toes. By the way, if you have any issues, find John Mark Homer's uh, email and email him because I stole his notes. I just believe it. I truly believe what he's saying. I mean, it has, it has so ingrained into my spirit what, what he's preaching in this message and tweaked it a little bit, whatever, whatever, but I believe it. Jesus wasn't anything like a typical king. He, was born, he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable to peasant parents. He didn't lead an army. He taught enemy love. He didn't defeat his enemies. He died on a cross for them. Which is why the vast majority of Jesus' parables are not about uh, the kingdom, or it's about the kingdom and how it's arrived, but how it's totally different than what almost anybody was expecting. It's not a kingdom like an army, but it's a kingdom of love and purpose and hope and joy. To quote, Jesus is a kingdom where the, this, this great line in the Bible, you know, the last are first and the first are last. It's a, it, some would say it's an upside down kingdom. Where everybody in politics, everybody in popularity, everybody in sports, everybody in movies, and, and even in our jobs, we're, we're, we're vying for the top spot. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is the opposite, that if you want to be first, you need to serve like your life depends on it. You need to love people like your life depends on it because your life does depend on it. But even greater so, your love showing them Jesus, their life depends on it. I love them. It's a kingdom with the power, where the powerful serve the weak, where the wealthy give to the poor, where the lonely are set in families, where the tax collector is invited to an open table. We're going to talk about that more next week. Where a sick are healed and where the lepers are loved and where the demonized are set free and where those entrenched in sin and addiction are made whole. Where weapons of war are turned into farming tools. This is the kingdom of God that he tells us to preach. It is a countercultural, upside-down kingdom that we don't naturally understand. It's a kingdom where agape love, as defined by Jesus, is the ultimate value and the most important reality. Agape is expressed as peace and justice and generosity and compassion. Can I tell you that Jesus doesn't look anything like Julius Caesar or Donald Trump or Joe Biden? So if you think, oh man, he's, he's not for Trump. You know, I'm not for any of them. I'm for Jesus. And though he's not on the next voting card, I wish he was. And, and we'll talk more about that, about what does it look like as Christians to vote? Because it's a struggle right now. Out of the millions of people, we've got the same two knuckleheads continuing to run. And we go, well, what, what do I do? We'll talk about that in a later date and time because I believe that there are things that we can do, but can I tell you that it's never gonna be exactly what we want? Yeah. It's never will. Not until Jesus comes back. And yet the claim that all four gospel writers make is that this upside down kingdom, which the last are first, it has arrived in Jesus. And even more provocatively, they claim somehow on the cross, God became king of the world. On the cross, the king drew all of the sin and death and demonic oppression of the world onto his shoulders. And he died for every people who rebelled against his reign. You and me all in his love. And somehow that act that the decisively act that broke the grip the theologians called the powers, which is Satan, sin, and death upon the world, and it began a revolution. 
That was the turning point in human history. Now listen, this is so interesting because uh, if you, this isn't even from the church perspective. There is a, uh, a agnostic historian, a secular agnostic historian, let's be very, very uh, defined about who he is, by the name of Tom Holland, who wrote a book called, um, it's in here somewhere, Dominion. But you know what the subtitle of that book is? How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. A secular, agnostic historian writes a book, and the tagline (laughs) is how Christianity changed the world. If you don't realize that the world is looking for an authentic gospel and an authentic people showing that gospel, they're crying out all over the place. My last point as I round third is the kingdom of God expands and grows not through coercive force, but by suffering love. The revolution is not like the American revolution or the French revolution or the red revolution or even the social media revolution of today. We are not trying to shove something down people's throats. We're trying to act in love and kindness with purpose to spread the joy and the hope of Jesus. Love takes longer, but it works better. And through apprenticeship to Jesus, we are learning to live in the kingdom of God and being formed into the people of love. And this new possibility for kingdom living with Jesus, later called eternal life and salvation, is available to all who repent and believe. Which, by the way, does not mean stop sinning and agree in your mind. Which is, listen, which is what most of the church teaches. That repenting just says, stop sinning. And believe in your heart means, just believe it. That's not what repent and believe really means. The word repent literally means to change your mind and your worldview so it can be, uh, so, the, so that your worldview can be translated. So here's um, John Mark Comer's uh, quote, attempt to be like Eugene Peterson when it comes to repent and believe. He says this, Re- rethink everything you think you know about who God is, deconstruction, and who you are, and what the good life you crave actually is, and put your trust and confidence in Jesus to heal you, save you, free you, and lead you to the life that you ache for. I love that description of repent and believe. It's not just take my sins, I believe you. It's to say, I no longer want to live a certain way with certain values. And I'm going to turn from them and I'm going to completely refresh my mind and rethink how I do life in light of who Jesus is. So that everything inside of me, listen, The problem with with salvation, the way the church preaches it 80% of the time, is that we are just, we're we're attacking attacking the, the obvious. You're a sinner that needs salvation. And Jesus says, I came for more than just to get you into heaven. I came so that you could be healed on earth. Those hurts and struggles you deal with, those pains you walk through, those feelings of not being enough, inadequate, 
self-deprecating because we, we, we then long to just be accepted so we do what everybody else wants us to do so that we can be liked? And how many times do we see in church people say, I, I love Jesus, but their life has never changed because they have not really allowed Jesus to do the wonder-working power of salvation, which is to completely change us. That's repentant belief. That's salvation. Salvation is free. You do not work for it. I want you to hear me loud and clear. Salvation is free, but the Bible says that we work out our salvation daily. That should mess up your theology a little bit about, say, a prayer. (laughs) Because though he offers it to us freely, he also says, you have to come and learn. Be my apprentice. Learn what it means to, to, to really love this world like I do. Sharice, you can come up as we close. We need not just saving, but healing and wholeness. So here's a practical, practical application as we end. From an early age, we start building our kingdom. Do you know that? From an early age. Think about every child. They learn how to say mom, dad, and mine. And no. <laughs> and no. It's also part of building. Mine. 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 And then as they start to get older, I got those tweens and teens in my house now. It's fun. Just watch teenagers sometime. At the dinner table, that's my chair. I, what, your chair? I paid for it. That's my chair. Or they go to get in the car. That's my side. That, that's mine. It's, listen, and, 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 it's, and it's funny because, it, it look, as adults, we do it too. It's because we're trying to figure out where our kingdom, where our power and authority is. That's mine. And as kids and as, as teenagers, they start to, to push the limits and they start to push against their parents' kingdom. And so there's this balance of trying to figure out where their kingdom in and where the parents' kingdom squashes. But it's good for them. It's healthy. And it's healthy also for them to get that correctiveness to know, mm too far. Because God does the same with us. God, this is my kingdom. He goes, really? But you say you want to follow me. There's a little bit of Adam and Eve in all of us. When God says, don't do this, it's not good for you. And you go, is it really? God says, hey, listen, I'm I'm trying to teach you and, and mold you into my image. And you're like, yeah, but I really like this. And, and God says, listen, but repent and believe doesn't mean just do the same thing over and over again, go to church and you're good. We have our kingdoms. But we have to relinquish our rights and our authority and our reign over to God so that our kingdom looks like his. Because everywhere we go in life, we're handing out a kingdom. The question is, is it ours or is it his? Come to my culture. We're coming to God's culture. We're all preaching the gospel. The question is, which one are you leaving with the world? The 
The gospel is not about changing our actions, but changing our person, which instills the story of Christ in its fullness in us and causes us to live from there, effectively changing the world around us. This is why discipleship is central to the gospel. And we're going to talk about discipleship next week and why it's so important and why it needs to be the key, one of the key ingredients that the church does. Because being an apprentice for Jesus is the only way to truly know him. I will end with this quote from Dr. Dallas Willard. It says this, if your preaching of the gospel does not naturally lead people to apprentice under Jesus, that doesn't mean that everybody you tell about Jesus has to come to know Jesus, but if you lead somebody to Jesus and it doesn't naturally lead them to disciple and, and apprentice under him as the logical next step, then you're not preaching the gospel of Jesus, you're preaching something else. That's so powerful. Because so many of us want to say just enough to get somebody to church that we leave them in this really, really bad area where they get just enough of Jesus to feel like they're close to him, but not enough to actually be in fullness in him. And then they start to hate the church or get hurt by the church. They never find their purpose, so they think it's pointless. Why should I go to church? Because it's not about a building or a group, it's about you. Allowing God's kingdom in on yours. Allowing it to mess up everything about you in the most healthiest and and best way. I hope that you maybe got a different view of the gospel today. Maybe you need to go home and sit and chew and think about this. How many are like, man, that that recap uh, life group about Sunday sounds really good right now. I've got questions, good. Uh, Go sign up for a life group afterwards. Let's pray. God, I pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Not our glory, but yours. And God, I pray that as we leave today that we would wrestle with this very thought. Am I living in my kingdom or am I living in yours? Have I given you full control or am I trying to hold on to something? Do I, have I ever even really believed the full gospel or have I just bought into this idea that you died for my sins and that's good enough and so I get to go to heaven? not realizing that the full gospel actually says, come and follow me. Die to yourself daily. Apprentice under Jesus. And that when we do that, we find the fullness of the gospel and we find purpose and passion and fulfillment. We find healing in the things that we never thought could be made whole again. Marriages are restored. Mental health is made whole. And so, God, we, we relinquish ourselves. And, God, we know it's not an overnight thing. It's a, it's a discipleship. It's a walk. It's a, an apprenticeship where we learn a little bit every day. But, God, give our spirit the faith to press on and press in. I thank you for today, and I pray that this word sticks to our soul in some way, shape, or form. And that, God, we would go and we would live the gospel out, the gospel of Jesus, everywhere we go, our workplace, our friend groups. We love you, Jesus. We give you glory and honor. 